I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So, yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, but even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seeing as a financial sector that's um, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not a drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Public education is the petri dish of our human culture. There's good reason why despots throughout history invest a lot of effort in young kids' education, from Hitler Youth to the Red Guards of Chairman Mao, The future is shaped quite directly through shaping rising generations. And the value of encouraging kids to be curious, to be passionate about learning, and perhaps most important, to develop skills at critical thinking, can hardly be overstated for the health of our republic and our democracy. While we're not going to talk about the multi-decade Republican assault on publication public education funding in today's discussion, we will look into where education is today partially as a result of that sustained effort. The question is, are we doing the best we can to spark interest in learning and in the value of education? By relying on 19th century Industrial Revolution standards and goals, are we failing to adequately encourage kids to learn Is our system of grading a big part of the problem? Perhaps so big we have generally chosen to just ignore it? The idea of making changes to how our schools grade students is certainly daunting. But though the task is great, does that mean we should stick with the same old, same old, less than effective system which so often serves to turn kids so thoroughly off to education? If you're like me, grades were often dreaded. Our sense of powerlessness over what we may have considered unfair and inaccurate measures was exacerbated through the heavy boot of grades. Who knows how many kids and how much great potential has been lost. And teachers do the best they can, parameters for grading being so rigid for them. Our guest today argues that it is time to enact a system that encourages revision and redemption instead of compliance. Instead of being rewarded for learning from mistakes and not simply dejected or made to feel stupid, do we really want to keep turning kids off to learning? If traditional grading practices have become a barrier to meaningful student learning, is it not our responsibility to shake things up? Well, our guest today on Keeping Democracy Alive is Joe Feldman, whose new book is Grading for Equity, How, What It Is, Why It Matters, and How It Can Form... Tra- uh, transform schools and classroom. Joe Feldman, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks, Bert. Thanks for talking with me. Well, it points out that our school's use of grading practices 
are largely unchanged from the early 1900s, and they inadvertently undermine effective teaching and learning and perpetuate the achievement and opportunity gaps. Joe Feldman has worked in education at the local and national levels for over 20 years in both charter and district school contexts as a teacher, principal, and district administrator. He began his career as a high school English and American history teacher in Atlanta public schools and was the founding principal of a charter high school in Washington, D.C. He's been the director of charter schools for the New York City Department of Education, the director of K-12 instruction in Union City, California, and was a fellow to the Chief of Staff for U.S. Secretary of Education, Richard Riley. Joe is currently CEO of Crescendo Education Group, which partners with schools and districts to help teachers use improved and and more equitable grading and assessment practices. He graduated from Stanford, Harvard Graduate School of Education, and NYU Law School. He's author of several articles on grading and assessment, and the author of Teaching Without Bells, What We Can Learn from powerful practice in small schools. Well, again, thanks for being with us. You say grades are at the root of school cultures and drive all major decisions about our students. And I'll tell you, from very recent personal experience as a parent of a high school senior, I can tell you how frustrated I have felt about the intense and relentless focus on grades. My daughter said she felt stupid because of a bad grade on a quiz. Your book makes one wonder how many million times other kids also feel stupid and start to lose confidence and interest in learning. We in the U.S. model a lot of our uh, government on the British example. I'm not sure if they still, in their education system, sort students at a relatively early age into either working class or higher achievers, categorizing them into rather fixed potentials. That system was probably set up in the 19th century. Was that our model? And how far have we come from that? Well, you're right that that grades are such a huge part of what we think about when we think about schools and some of the most important decisions that we make about students, um, decisions that affect the trajectory of their lives are driven by the grades that they get. So everything from, you know, what academic track are they on to do they get to be uh, athletically eligible to do after-school activities on the on the field? or do they get promoted to the next grade or graduate, scholarships, admission to college, uh, even in many states, the car insurance rates that, that students or their parents oh, wow. pay are, are influenced by the grades that students get. All right. And we also know that grades have a big psychological uh, influence on how kids think about themselves, like you mentioned about your kids. Um, it's, it changes how they think about who they are uh, and their capacity for success. And we continue to use the practices from the early 20th century where um, one of the aspects of it, as you mentioned, is that we, when we first started to have grades, the A through F system, uh-huh. um, it was during the Industrial Revolution when one of our big priorities was to identify who would be the bosses and who would be the factory workers and then sort them as efficiently as possible. And that's an idea that we completely reject as we talk about schools today, where we have standards set up for them, where we believe that every student can meet those standards. And so um, that's one um, example of where we have a grading system that was built on a particular ideology, and now we have a completely different way of thinking, but we continue to use the same uh, practices in grading. Uh, One could apply that to so many things in politics as well. What do you mean by grading for equity? What does that mean? Right. Well, 
You know, I've been a, in education a long time, and when, particularly when I was a principal and a district administrator, something always nagged at me was that you could have two teachers, um, let's say they teach the same class in the school, like Algebra One, and they might even be next door to each other, and they would have the same textbook and the same uh, uh, training and similar students, and everything would be pretty similar, and yet one teacher would have a 10% uh, failure rate. That means 10% of her kids might be failing. And the next teacher over teaching the same course, same textbook, same training might have 40% of their students failing. And when I looked at it, it was really about the way that they graded. And I found that um, as I did more research into this, that teachers are doing practices that are mathematically unsound and highly subjective and biased and that demotivate students and actually perpetuate a lot of the disparities we have in our schools. So Equitable grading is grading that's more accurate, um, and it reflect, they reflect what students know, not how they behave or other characteristics about students. They're not biased. They're, they're resistant to the biases that are in our schools, either structurally or by individuals. And the third is that they build in intrinsic motivation of students. Motivation, yeah, that, that is extremely important. And I've, I've seen, and you've seen a lot more than I have, about kids' motivation being... Uh, stomped on basically by getting some bad grades you know just every now and then they could be really bright kids and have a lot to contribute to society but that that's a a major disincentive i gotta ask the obvious question if we don't have grades what is going to motivate kids to try harder for little kids now we have uh races and they all get a number one afterwards you know and and it's just sort of coddling and i don't i think that's unrealistic Mm -hmm. so yeah, so it, I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't have grades. Um, I think there are some, like Alfie Cohen and other folks, who think that there shouldn't be any letter grade system, um, and it should all be narrative descriptions. And I, I'm not—I'm more agnostic about that. I'm—I'm I'm okay with an A through F system because I think we have to have kind of some clear ways that we can communicate about our students. But what's really problematic is the way that teachers generate those grades um, in ways that. Um, aren't accurately describing what students know. So let me give you an example. Let's say we've got two students sitting next to each other in a class, and one student knows all the content of the class. They, they know it like the back of their hand. Um, they're just a, a wizard. But they come late a couple times. Um, they turn in assignments late a couple times. Maybe they um, don't take notes the way the teacher would like. And so instead of getting an A, that student maybe gets a B in the class. And you'll have a student next to them who doesn't know the content very well, is pretty weak and struggles a lot and just doesn't know it very well, but is an angel in the classroom, does everything the teacher asks, um, follows all the directions, does all the extra credit, and instead of getting a C, which is maybe their level of content mastery, they would get it bumped up to a B. So you'd have two kids sitting next to each other that both have a B, but they're totally different students. And because teachers are putting so much information into the grade, it warps the accuracy of it, and it makes it so the grade doesn't really tell us very much. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want my student to get a B if they actually don't know the content very well, even if they're really nice and do everything <laughs> the teacher asks, because they might go to the next grade level and get crushed by the difficulty of the content because they were unprepared. And I think that that's one big example of how the letter grades themselves may not be so much the enemy. It's just that the way that teachers are traditionally um, creating the grades and, and rendering them is creating all these inequities and inaccuracies.
So uh, doesn't don't grades kind of motivate kids? If you get a C now, you work harder to get an A next time? Well, yes and no. So the research is pretty clear that at the extremes, if a student gets a really low grade, uh, an F, and especially right. repeated Fs, right. it does not there is no such thing as the motivational F. Yeah. Uh, there's no research to suggest once students start getting Fs that they then start turning themselves around. And I think a lot of times um, teachers have been led to believe that giving an F will motivate students, and there's no evidence that it does. Yeah. Most, most of the time what happens is the student becomes despondent and just yeah. becomes much more unmotivated and sometimes even stops attending class or drops out. Yeah. So that's at the extreme level. Um, grades can motivate students if they feel like they have a chance of being successful. And unfortunately, in many of the traditional grading practices, we don't give students that chance. So let's say you have a student who comes in the first day of school and they're about to begin a unit on writing a a persuasive essay. Mm. And one student comes in and they, they really write a pretty bad essay. They just don't know how to do it. And so they start out getting a D or Ds and Fs on it. But then over the course of the term, they work hard, they learn a lot, the teacher does her job, and everybody, the, the, the student is successful so that by the end of that unit, the student is writing a, an incredible essay and at an A level. Well, in traditional grading, we average a student's right. performance over time. So the Fs that the student got at the beginning are included in the calculation of the grade, just like the A is at the end, so that the student then has an overall performance for that unit of a C even though the student ended up being uh, masterful at the unit and should have gotten an A. And that's a perfect example of how mm-hmm. students recognize if they get a few low grades at the, end of a, at the beginning of a term, they know that they cannot never get a successful grade because their, their average is going to be so low. Um, whereas instead, we should be looking at the most recent performance of students. We should give that student that started at a low grade and then was successful at the end their A. They deserved it. They learned it. They did everything we asked. And I think those kinds of practices that have been around for a long, long time um, are ones that need to be reexamined so that we can really motivate students. So they know that even if I make mistakes at the beginning, if I learn the material and I'm successful at the end, I'll get the grade that reflects what I know and not an average of what I did. And we like to think that what you're talking about is is how life works. If you know you make mistakes in the beginning, uh, you even may do bad things uh, as a kid but you do better later on. And that is not supposed to hold you back, that those early mistakes. In fact, they're learning opportunities. They really are. Uh, no question. That's right. I mean, when, when I talk with teachers, I, I ask them, what is the role of learning in a class in, in, or mistakes in a class? And they'll say, well, you have to make mistakes in order to learn. Right. In fact, it, you won't learn if you don't make mistakes. Exactly. So if that's true, then I think teachers inadvertently are undermining their own belief system by penalizing students for their early mistakes. And, and yeah. one of the things that I, I talk about is that teachers get no training in how to grade. There's nothing in no. graduate school that, no. that they get. They don't get much when they go into a school. And so most of them just continue to, do, to grade in ways that they were graded as students and that they've been grading for a long time. And, and once they get an opportunity to look at it more critically, they realize that a lot of the practices that, they're, that they've been using are actually undermining what they want to have happen in their classes. Wow, interesting that they don't 
<laughs> I'm I'm frankly a little bit surprised that they don't get uh, training in grading, but hey, I believe you've done some amazing research. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here on keeping democracy alive, and education is absolutely essential to a democracy. Our guest today is Joe Feldman, whose new book is Grading for Equity, What It Is, Why It Matters, and How It Can Transform Schools and Classrooms. Uh, I understand you have a young son, and he and his classmates are full of energetic curiosity in first grade. They learn because learning is fun and exciting. And I think pretty much any parent who's listening to this knows what happens, what usually happens by middle and high school to that excitement and that enthusiasm for learning. What, 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 That's right. What have you observed? Yeah, so when um, students come in at kindergarten, first grade, they are never asking the question that comes up all the time in middle school and high school, which is they never ask, how many points do I get? And that's because they don't learn that that school is about points until they get to late elementary school and middle school, where teachers start talking about achievement in terms of points, and they and teachers use points as a way of uh, motivating students. So they'll say things like, "Okay, in like fourth or fifth grade, they'll say, all right, whoever um, is the quietest group will get five points.'" and when we go out, when we come back from recess, if everybody gets their book out uh, within one minute, everybody gets five points. And if you're late, you lose five points. And that comes into full blossom and, and even more in high school, where the language of learning is in terms of points. I got 42 out of 50 points, or I got 70 out of 78 points on a, on a project. And because we do that, we start pulling students away from being intrinsically motivated to learn right. and instead get them thinking about extrinsic motivation of points. And the irony is that we all complain that students are so consumed with points. They'll even say, you know, I'm, fi- I'm two points away from an A, or how can I get some extra credit points? Everything is about points. And that really is an echo uh, and a vestige of the Industrial Revolution again. During that time in the early 20th century, it's when uh, Skinner, uh, the behaviorist, talked about, well, you know, you put rats in a cage and I can teach the rat to pull the lever by giving it food and not to do things by shocking it. And that idea that we can affect human behavior, just like rat behavior, by extrinsic motivation is something that's woven deeply into the way that we grade in, mm. the, in our schools. Jeez. Even though we know that extrinsic motivation now is a terrible motivator. We have decades of, of research that shows that intrinsic motivation is much more valuable for learning and that if you extrinsic motivate people, you'll undermine uh, critical thinking. And so this whole vocabulary and commerce of points that happens in our schools um, is is making grading less equitable and less motivational for students. Um, and we can make it more intrinsically motivational if we start taking out some of the points that are, that are part of our grading. And, of course, before the show is over, I want to get to, uh, you know, how, how it could look, you know, a picture of, of what education yep. could be. I, I did want to, you know, I, I have another daughter who uh, is a senior in college, and she's taking the LSAT uh, mm-hmm. law school admission test. My sister used to write questions and answers for the SATs in Princeton, New Jersey, way back a long time ago. Many kids in 
including mine, just don't perform well on these tests. There's the time constraints. There's all kinds of pressure. I've heard it said there is implicit bias in such tests, but they're trying to address such issues. Are they a fair and accurate measure? Are they part of the problem you seek to address, or are they something else? Well, uh, they're related. So I, th- I think that, let me talk about um, implies and justice, implicit bias in a second. But um, when we um, test students, when we assess them, we have to be really careful that we're not embedding um, the, our test with questions that may prevent kids from showing what they know. So, in other words, if the language I use in a, in a sentence is a little confusing, or if my question isn't worded quite right, or I'm referencing something that not all students will know about, then the problem is that the student won't be able to show me what they know, and the grade should, should reflect what students know. So I talk to teachers about how, so let's say you give a test, and a student who two days before will clearly showed mastery of the content, maybe from a discussion. But then they take the test, and they do terribly on it. So you have the authority as a teacher to say, well, you know what, I think this test score actually doesn't represent what the student knows. I'm going to call the student up and have a conversation with them and give them another way of showing that they know the content. And if they show that, I'm going to replace the test grade with my conversation grade. And rather than being chained to the points that a student earned on a test, this work around being more equitable actually empowers teachers much more than they have been in the past. Um, And I think um, that having that freedom for them to to accurately describe what students know in a fair way is really important to them. Yeah, interesting. I, I, of course, know a whole bunch of teachers, and and they feel, I can tell lots of times they feel like, they're being crushed by a system of, you know, various teaching for tests, and they, they can't, their freedom is, is squished, and they could do a lot better as teachers uh, without, uh, they need some changes, and uh, boy, it's, it's a big task, no question about it. One of the things that, that you talk about, I think that, that's very interesting, that, that affects grades quite a bit, I get the sense that parent involvement varies Tremendously. I wonder if you could talk about how home environment may unfairly skew grades. Yeah. So uh, one of the common practices is that teachers will give points for students completing homework. And we've already talked a little bit about sort of the the extrinsic motivation aspect of that, but I want to move to another aspect of why it's inequitable. So a teacher will assign a a homework assignment and um, give the student points when they turn it in correctly or sometimes just for completing it. So when students do homework, a lot of whether or not the student completes the homework and completes it correctly is based on the support they have in their house so or in their home. So a student who has two parents who both are college educated, who are available in the evening, and the student has internet access and a quiet space and no other responsibilities uh, and a well-lit area they're much more likely to complete homework and to get it done correctly than the student who has maybe a single parent and maybe they have a job in the evening so they're not available and the student has other responsibilities like job or taking care of younger siblings and it's not as quiet a space and they don't have internet access. Those students are much less likely to complete homework. And so when teachers include a student's performance on homework in the grade, 
they're filtering um, for privileges. They are rewarding students who have privilege, the students who have the resources, and they end up penalizing and taking off points for the students who have fewer resources. And that would be independent of what the student actually knows. We, we don't necessarily know that when the student brings back their completed homework that they learned anything from it. They could have had an uh, older sibling do it or gotten a lot of help from a tutor or a parent. And so just completing homework doesn't mean that the student has learned, but we're including information that is reflecting the student's resources um, and, and embedding those in the grade. So a teacher might, if he or she doesn't, isn't familiar with the, the home situation, might think, oh, it's just laziness or some other character flaws why the, the kid is not doing his or her homework. And uh, that's, that's not realistic. That's just not realistic. And teachers can't be expected to do all that. Now, as, as you point out, grading has been called the third rail of schools. You write that we need to free ourselves from an antiquated, unclear, and essentially discredited system that weakens teachers' effectiveness and their credibility. Boy, I know that from teacher friends of mine. Why do you think teachers react so strongly to the suggestion that their grading practices are a fair topic for discussion? Why is grading so often a silenced dialogue in our schools? Yeah, I mean, it, it goes to something you said, which is that teachers feel that so much of their freedom has been taken away. I mean, in this age of, of many, many mandates and expectations mm. placed on teachers, you know, not only do they have to implement a prescribed curriculum in many cases and, and follow all kinds of district regulations and guidelines, but they're asked to teach not just the content, but a lot of social-emotional skills in students um, and have to act as not just a teacher, but a counselor and a confidant and an advisor for college and, I mean, all kinds of roles and responsibilities. Grading is what I call their last island of autonomy, that it's the last place where they get to own the entire decision around what grade to assign. And that's often protected even in a state education code or by district policy that no one can override a teacher's grade. And so that's a very treasured um, part of who they are. And the suggestion that they may be grading in ways that are inequitable and, and um, contradicting a lot of what they want to have happen in the classroom can feel very threatening, um, I think justifiably. The good news is that when they get a chance to learn about the history of their grading and see the ways that it, that it negatively impacts what they're trying to do and to see how alternative grading practices actually promote better learning and create more motivated students, they really are excited and a little um, resentful that they never got training or education about grading until now. Wow. I started thinking about uh, the Robin Williams film, uh, Goodwill Hunting, when he's an incredibly inspiring mm -hmm. teacher and the, the system doesn't like it. <laughs> uh, what does research suggest about grading behavior, class participation, adherence uh, to rules? How is that especially ripe for implicit bias? Give us an example of how a teacher might misinterpret a student's behavior as disrespectful especially if the student's race or culture is different from the teacher's own culture. Right. So um, it, it has to do with when teachers include things like participation uh, in the grade. So just like I said, there, 
teachers are tasked with teaching not just the content but behavioral skills, um, what teachers will do is they will say, well, if I need to teach students how to participate in a discussion uh, respectfully, then I'm going to have to include their behavior in that discussion in the grade. Um, so the problem with that is that a teacher's um, idea of what appropriate participation is is usually a projection of what they were like as a student and what they believe best promotes learning for them. But that may actually not be what promotes learning for other kids, and it also creates a lot of uh, biased views of students. So an example is, so I uh, maybe I'm trying to lead a discussion. I'm a white male teacher, middle class, trying to lead a discussion. And one of the rules I have for the discussion is that only one person can talk at a time. And so that's the rule, and if you follow that rule, you'll get more points in the discussion. So I may have students in my class who have a background where the, the ideal way to promote thinking is in a discussion is to have lots of voices overlapping each other and create sort of this symphony of ideas all happening at the same time. Mm. Um, where there's listening and talking at the same time. Ah. And uh, particularly African-American culture is more likely to be that. And so if I come from a more culturally specific idea of what good discussions look like, I'm going to penalize students who don't accommodate and, and adapt to that idea, even though having this symphony of voices in a conversation where where kids are overlapping each other um, in, in their discussion, may actually promote a lot deeper learning by many students. So that's an example of where the, the implicit biases that I have, and I'm not even aware that I'm thinking about participation in a culturally narrow way, that I'm, I'm embedding those implicit biases into the way that I'm grading. And so the grade then becomes not so much a reflection of what a student knows, but around how well does the student comply with my culturally specific right. idea of how students should behave. Fascinating. As, as I think about uh, you know, how I opened this discussion, public education is the petri dish of our human culture. <laughs> there are a bunch of different cultures in the United States. You know, we, we, we like to think that there's, you know, that white male uh, Christian culture is not dominant, but, uh, you know, as you were saying, uh, uh, black Culture enables that symphony of discussion, and the culture I grew up in, Jewish, in, enables that symphony of discussion too. But that's kind of one at a time talking. You know, it 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 it, it goes in conflict with that, and so the cultural uh, uh, bias. You know, this we have to recognize we are multicultural, and it's a challenge for sure. You know, it's not just that's a, right. And we, we've actually come a long way around discipline. You know, in the past decade or so, we've become a lot more aware of um, certain discipline policies that would disproportionately punish African-American and Latino students. So, you know, categories that teachers used to have or administrators would have, like defiance, where if someone showed defiance, I could uh. give them a detention or suspend them. We know that defiance can be so subjectively interpreted uh, and and has biases embedded in that, uh, racial biases embedded in that, mm -hmm. that we have now taken out that idea, that defiance. Most schools now do not have defiance as a category of oh, um, punishment yeah. because they know that how susceptible it is to bias. The problem is that in our grading, 
we still have that all over the place. I mean, it's kind of why teachers will sometimes, um, when students are taking a test, have students write their name on the back of the test because you don't want to, ha- the teacher's trying to prevent themselves ah. from um, being subjective and biased oh, toward or against certain students, right? They're trying to protect themselves from their own biases. And we have to do that more with our grading. And one way to do that is to not include how students participate in the grade, not include our interpretations of their behavior in the grade. And that can protect the student and ourselves from the biases that we would otherwise bring. Fascinating. I can think of, uh, I tend to think defiance actually can be a good thing sometimes, especially these days. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but not usually rewarded in schools. For sure. I know. And understandably. Uh, And, (laughs) you know, maybe that's outside school. I don't know. I mean, some might argue that you know, and schools, as as is clear now, you know, this like 19th century industrial revolution is targeted toward that, which we are a long way from. Some might argue that soft skills such as time management, attendance, following directions, showing respect towards adults and peers might be more important than academic content because they prepare students for the workplace, especially because the real world is harsher and more for unforgiving for some workers than for others. What about these soft skills? Should they be included in the grade, or or what about that? That may be sort of a, a, a difficult thing to deal with, maybe not. Yeah, I, I mean, it's another example of the things that teachers are supposed to teach students to be able to do, um, to, you know, to take good notes and be on time and how to work collaboratively in a group. But it's much, I, I liken it to participation. It's behaviors that students are showing that may or may not have anything to do with their learning. And you shouldn't include it in the grade also because it's got biases. So, But that doesn't mean that you don't want to teach students to do it and you don't want to give them feedback. So what I help teachers do is better connect the behaviors of students to their outcomes. So here's an example. So oftentimes we, when teachers do something like group work, they feel like, well, I have kids do a group project. I want to somehow give them a grade based on how well they work with each other in the group. So, you know, are they collaborating? Are they listening to each other? Um, are they managing their time well? And the, the, what I recommend is to say, look, instead of grading how they do on that process, look at how much did they learn from the project. So give them an assessment after the project. And if the students did well on that, then go back and say, okay, let's look. How did you manage your time? How did you listen to each other? How did you work with each other so that you ended up doing very well on, their, on the learning? Yeah. If they didn't show learning, if they do badly on the individual assessments, then go back and say, well, let's look. Like, how did you manage your time? What was the problem? Did you listen to each other like you should have? And by doing that, we're connecting the process of learning to the result. Instead of saying, we're just grading you on a process regardless how, of how much you learn. As long as you look like you're doing the things you're supposed to do and as long as you seem to be mimicking what I've asked you to do, mm-hmm. you'll get points. Instead of doing that, say, I'm going to help teach you some good ways to work with each other and after you finish and, and uh, have a product and show what you've learned, we're going to go back and see what did you do that led to you being successful. And by doing that, we're helping students really connect their own investment and their own behaviors into the results that they have, and not just acting in ways that earn them points. 
And that's how you build real deep skills, deep soft skills in students. I, I personally, I really value if schools can uh, teach kids how to learn. You know, because a lot of times they don't learn how to learn. But if they mm-hmm. learn, if they can do that, to, to me, that's a successful uh, school. Uh, so, what's wrong with categories? We mentioned this a little bit, such as participation and effort. Yeah. And again, it's really because of the biases that are in it. I mean, even effort. So sometimes teachers will say, uh, you know, they'll look at the end of the term and they'll see the student has a B plus and they'll say, oh, you know, man, this student worked so hard and I know how difficult the background they have. And even though, you know, they didn't quite make it, they they worked really a lot, I I could tell. So I'm going to bump up their grade a little bit. And this student who has the same grade, and I didn't, I didn't really see the same kind of effort, so I'm just going to leave their grade the way it is. And there's a lot of subjectivity in that, in that judgment. We don't actually know how hard a student is working, and we are certainly not in the position to compare and evaluate how much work a student did um, compared to other students. So just because a student seemed to show that they were working hard um, that doesn't mean that they're working any harder than the student who we don't see working hard. We, for all we know, the student who the who didn't show like the sweat that we saw from the first student may have tons of things outside the classroom that we don't have any vantage to see that was struggling just as much and overcame just as much. And I think when we give that boost of effort, uh, we're embedding even more subjectivity and even more biases into the grade, which, which shouldn't be there. And frankly, you know, there's a lot of teachers who say, well, you know, if a student got the grade, if they come in, you know, a, a grade or two or three levels behind, and they're working really hard, and they're really only at a C level or a D level, I want to give them a C or a, or a B. I want to give them a higher grade just to keep them motivated because I don't want them to be discouraged. And my response to that is that you you are you don't want to mislead students. You don't want to tell students that they're at a B level when they're actually at a C level because you then are setting them up. And you give true dignity to students and their families when you tell them the truth about where they are and you say, you are at a D and you worked like crazy and you've come so far, but you're at a D level and there's no reason to think you won't become a C level next or a B because we are here to support you, and I think it's incredible what you've done. And I think there's a respect that you give to, to groups and to students and families when you are clear and accurate in the message that you give. And I think encouraging students to be truthful and accurate, not a bad thing. In, in, mm-hmm. in, in, in 2011 and 2012, you tested a design with a dozen teachers in a medium-sized district in Northern California. I want to find, you know, here how that worked. Tell us about that. What did teachers have to say about it? And, you know, what positive experiences do you have from trying out what you're talking about? Yeah, so uh, starting about five or six years ago um, is when I started doing this work after leaving um, a school district and, and thinking about how I could best help districts and schools by helping them improve their grading. So since then, and I've worked with hundreds of teachers in schools and districts across the country. And what we're finding consistently is that once teachers kind of get past some of the suspicion and some of the defensiveness um, and start trying these practices, they find in their own classrooms that D and F rates are going down. So in other words, the percent of students getting Ds and Fs is decreasing. 
Um, and a large part of that is because students aren't being um, penalized for behavior and, and subjective criteria like participation and effort and things like that, as well as that, as I mentioned earlier, we're not averaging their performance over time. And the second thing that's happening is that a, the percent of students getting A's is decreasing because students aren't getting rewarded for just completing homework uh, or just following all the directions of the teacher. And teachers are reporting that the grades feel more accurate to them and students are more motivated than before, and they're talking less about points. They're, instead of saying I'm four points away from an A, they're saying uh, if I can just figure out how to use this, like if they're figuring out something in math, you know, if I could just figure out how to do this with negative exponents, I'll be able to get the A. So they're talking about their learning in terms of the content, not about the numbers of points they're away from learning. As we've continued to do this, um, we've gotten external evaluators to look at the relationship between the grades that teachers are assigning and the, um, the standardized test scores that students are taking. And while I have my reservations about standardized tests, I would rather the grade be more closely correlated with that test than farther away. And what we're finding is that the grades are getting closer. It's reducing inflation of grades, and it's reducing deflation of grades at the same time. The last thing I'll say is that what was particularly interesting is that the DNF rate is going down sharper for black and brown and poor kids and students who are in special education, and the A rate is going down sharper for white and uh, higher income students. So what that's showing is that when you take the biases out of the grade and you don't penalize students for early mistakes you're, and making your grading more equitable, it's showing how the traditional grading system is slanted toward privileging students with privilege and punishing those without it. Interesting. So if I hear you right, it sounds like a big part of the problem has been for a really long time the subjectivity, which has been basically unavoidable. Are, are there ways to actually just measure, to quantify uh, more objectively, it sounds like you're giving some hope that maybe that's possible. Yeah, and, it, you know, it's not, you know, saying that, well, teachers are just robots, and, um, you know, I, I do think that there's oh, yeah. subjectivity that's always going to be in grading. When I read an essay, I have to make some judgment about it as a teacher, yes. um, and that is going to necessarily be subjective. But what we can do is we can reduce the subjectivity as much as possible and pull out the implicit biases and some of the structural inequities. So what teachers can do is they can say, let's have some agreement within our school or within our district or within our state, um, and many schools and districts and states have done this, where they say, we're actually going to define what are the characteristics of a high-quality ninth-grade persuasive essay. And they use something called a rubric, um, which is where you define exactly what are the, the different elements of uh, an essay and what it actually looks like at each of those different levels. And you can get teachers to then collab uh, collaborate and calibrate. So they would give all the students in a school or a district or a state the same score, the same grade for a persuasive essay. And once you start doing that and you get some consistency around what it means to get a B or what it means to get an A, 
um, you really start to get um, much greater equity and you solve that problem that I mentioned at the beginning where teachers next door to each other teaching the same class would give a different grade and, and the grade would reflect the teacher more than the student. Mm. The, the final part of this is that you can really get rid of a lot of the structural biases. So the homework example was one where you know the student who has resources is getting the points and the student who doesn't isn't. Um, another example is in the uh, in looking at the averaging of performance. So you know the student who I mentioned at the earlier who came in the first day of school and didn't know how to write a persuasive essay and and had an F at the beginning and later had an A and so I was talking about how uh, mm-hmm. it's much more equitable to give that student the A when they sure. finally made it yeah. instead of averaging their performance. Think about maybe the summer before that, um, that student wasn't in any kind of special program to learn how to write a persuasive essay, but there was another student in the class who was. You know, Their parents put them in the, un- the local university's writing program the summer before. They had the money and the resources and the time. And so that student, the summer before school even started, learned to write a persuasive essay. So they come in the first day of school and they write a, dy- a dynamite essay from day one, and they consistently write great essays. So when we average a student's performance over time, that student has an A, no problem. And the student who wasn't in the summer program, maybe they were staying with their grandparent in North Carolina or had to work, they didn't get that support, and so they started at an F, and they finally made it to the A by the end. And if we average a student's performance over time, we're rewarding the, the resources and privileges that 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 first student had when, who went to the summer camp. And I think we just don't recognize that by using these traditional practices that seem neutral on their face, right? What could be mm-hmm. neutral than mathematically averaging? Math can't be biased. But in, in fact, what we're doing is we're perpetuating the disparities that are in our society. And when we, when we say that we want schools to stop perpetuating those disparities. So uh, that's why thinking about grading in different ways is so critical to having a much more equitable school where all students get a chance to be successful. And I know a lot of parents, parents, including myself, have been concerned about, uh, especially I think in elementary school, something that uh, parents have, re- have called grade creep, where you know, it makes it easier uh, to get high grades and, and you know, it, the teachers are trying to be nice and not make the parents angry. But that doesn't uh, help education. To make it clear, you're not talking about that at all. It sounds like it may even be more difficult for students to get uh, the best grades. Just wanted to address yeah, that. I mean, Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, when I talk, so in the example, when I work with um, teachers and they find that their DNF rate goes down, mm. uh, I ask them, you know, did it get easier? Did you make things just easier? And they say, no, in fact, it was harder, that students couldn't, get high grades just by following all the directions and doing all the stuff we asked them to do. The only way they could get high grades is by their knowledge and actually learning the content. And when I talk with parents about this, um, they're initially skeptical, just like the teachers, because parents, you know, we've been in a system that's used traditional grading, so the suggestion that it could be different is a little unnerving to us. And when they learn that, oh, the student is actually going to have their grade reflect what they know, not how well they follow directions, um, teachers or parents think that's a wonderful thing. And it does decrease grade inflation. Um, And Mm. it does then make students understand exactly where they are in relationship to the the 
standards or the content goals for the class, um, which is really what we want the grade and we had hoped it would re- represent from the very beginning. Um, another thing I tell parents is, you know, you, you have a big part to play in helping grading more, be more equitable. When you go into your parent-teacher conference, for example, mm. you can ask the question, so what would my student's grade be if it only reflected their level of content mastery? If it didn't reflect any other thing than their level of content mastery, what would their grade be? And that can open up a really wonderful conversation with the teacher that can help them, help the teacher think about the grade differently and help the parent become much more aware um, and knowledgeable about where their student is. Um, And I think that that, having parents start to ask those questions and help the school recognize that how much more valuable the grade would be to the parents if it were accurate and Mm -hmm. fair um, can go a long way. Yeah, I would think so. And I, I, you know, you you hear, at least I hear that, uh, you know, there might be less involvement with parents these days, that they they seem to have, you know, kind of walked away from their kids' education. I find that very frustrating. And I imagine there's a lot of reaching out that has to be done to, to parents. And I'm, I'm reminded that, you know, my middle-class parents emphasize learning for its own sake. Uh, you know, and today, you know, largely it seems education is more focused on getting a good job with a higher income. How do we encourage students, perhaps, and parents, too, to want to learn for its own sake? Yeah, I think a big part of that is redefining what the grade represents. I think that because there's so much about points, and it's really, you know, when I ask students, as part of this work, um, as I partner with schools and districts, I, I, I interview students, and they will tell me that, I ask them, so do you get the sense when you're in classrooms that the conversation is around how many points have people earned or how much people have learned? And they always tell me it's about points. I mean, we have mm. trained students and their parents to think about learning in the language of points. And it's only about how many points do you get. That is the only way to describe what, how successful students are. And if we can take that out and instead have a grade reflect what students know. In other words, your B isn't that you got this number of points, but it's, it's a description of your level of mastery of the content. It can totally change how kids talk and change how parents talk. I mean, teachers will talk about how when they switch and change the way that they grade, that students will instead, they will do more homework sometimes when homework isn't included in the grade. It's much to the teacher's surprise. Students will come to the teacher and say, oh, I don't quite know how to do X yet, and I know if I I learn how to do X, my grade will go up. How do I learn how to do X? What can you help me learn? What, what, what assignments can you give me? What support can I get so that I learn X? Um, it just changes the way that kids think about themselves and their own and where they are on the learning trajectory. I, I just, I, you know, it doesn't solve all the problems, right. but I think as long as we keep using this traditional system, we're going to keep getting frustrated with the results that we get and the way that kids talk about learning. And if we don't change some of the foundational aspects of our schools, like the way that we grade, we're never going to make any headway, either in that or in decreasing the achievement and opportunity gaps. And frankly, our democracy suffers too. I mean, in order to be a citizen, our founders knew 
education is absolutely essential. We can't just say, oh, let the dictator run things. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> All the methods you discuss in your book seem really good. What do you say to the skeptic who predicts that they seem to require more work on the part of our already overburdened teachers? Yeah. So teachers are worried about that, that making this kind of a switch will make the, their work harder. Um, and when you try something new, it's always going to add a little work. Um, but they find that it's actually saving them a lot of time. So instead of every day walking around with your clipboard and giving students five points for having their notebook ready, and that's you know 10 minutes every class, and then going home and entering all that data into the gradebook. Uh. And teachers talk about how they're saving like an hour a day from all this data entry and all this monitoring of students and, and checking off points and things like that, that they can actually use that hour for curriculum planning and designing different kinds of assessments and doing the things that they went into teaching for. No teacher likes to grade. They all describe it as one of the worst parts of the job. And so what this is doing is it's making it a much more, um, it, it's making it a part of their work that aligns with what teaching and learning should be and not making it as this sort of bean-counting task that teachers dread doing, but rather it being really a, a, a support of the teaching and learning that's happening in the classroom. Well, I'll tell you, as I say, I know a lot of teachers, and uh, they're, they're not in it for the money. They know that, but they get real rewards from, from believing that they're helping kids learn. And, and I have to believe that uh, less bean counting and more, you know, <laughs> enabling students to learn would make them even happier. And, and you ask, and, and you've kind of answered this, really, can we grade in ways that demonstrate our unflagging belief that every student can meet our academic expectations regardless of their privileges or previous experiences. But it, it sounds like, yes, we can. And it's encouraging. Yeah, I mean, it Go ahead. It, it, I'm sorry, but it, it, it requires us to examine the one of the hallowed foundations of our schools, which is grading. And rather than avoid the conversation, which <laughs> yeah. a lot of teachers and and administrators do, and a lot of parents don't think it's even something worth talking about, um, we've got to take it on. I, I mean, we have a lot of initiatives in our schools and a lot of things that need improvement, and we see ways to make schools better. Um, and a lot of those are really exciting, you know, whether we bring in iPads or we think about new curriculum. But grading is like the plumbing in the house. It's not very glamorous, yeah. um, but <laughs> it's not working then you just can't do anything if you don't fix it. And I think there's a lot of things that we're, we're undermining and uh, making a lot harder for us because we're not tackling this issue. Boy, I guess so. It, it, but tackling it is hard, but it's got to be done. The book is called Grading for Equity, What It Is, Why It Matters, and How It Can Transform Schools and Classrooms. We've been talking to our guest, uh, the author, Joe Feldman. What's a concerned parent to do? with the information they may have acquired by hearing this interview? So I think an easy one is, as I said earlier, is to when you talk with a teacher, to ask them, and, they, and the teacher tells you your kid got a C in English or a B in math and Algebra 1, to ask them, oh, right, so just so I know, if the grade only reflected the level of content mastery 
of my student, only what they knew of the course content, and didn't include any behaviors, any late work, any participation, anything like that, what would my student's grade be? I think that is a big step in getting some clarity and, and sort of raising the issue. And there's lots of other things that, that parents and other advocates for schools and teachers can do. You know, I've, I've got a website up now that's called okay. gradingforequity.org, uh-huh. which has uh, sort of teacher testimonials and um, excerpts from the book and articles and um, examples from teachers who have used more equitable practices. So just so that we can have as many ways for people to access this information and be able to bring it to their schools and their families and their and their districts. Gradingforequity.org, right? Is that Gradingforequity.org, yes. Yes, indeed. Well, thank you so much. This has been very, dare I say, educational. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Thanks a lot for having me. I, uh, I enjoyed it. All right. Well, I, education, as I say, is ex- it's essential. Uh, when people aren't educated when they don't believe in their own sense of power, they give up. And it's really uh, dangerous to democracy. We need education. Thanks so much uh, for listening and uh, caring about such things. The Mighty Sparrow. Education is essential. Education in your head Your whole life will be pure 
your misery, you're better off dead. For there is simply no room in this whole wide world for an uneducated little boy or girl. Don't follow. 